Well, we've been studying the uh, book of Revelation, John's revelation that he received from Jesus Christ. And uh, we've been learning that, in fact, that the main chunk of the book is uh, a um, description of what will be going on throughout the age between Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension and before he comes again. And uh, that's described in very vivid imagery to help us to get a really clear grasp and to catch the, the emotional weight of what, Peter, uh, what uh, John has seen. We got, got to Revelation chapter 10 uh, this morning. I'm going to read um, a large chunk from the beginning of chapter 10 through till uh, uh, the middle of chapter 11. And you remember that uh, this is uh, an interlude, effectively, uh, between the sixth and the seventh of the great trumpets that were sounded that we were reading about uh, last week. They, we saw, were, were warnings to uh, alert people to the malevolent forces that there are at work in this world. But then before the seventh trumpet, John sees this. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot in the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him, give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomachs turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it was given, has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. 
and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, there is not a piece of your scripture that we do not need your help to help us to understand. But so often when we come to this book of Revelation, we are acutely conscious that we need you to help us to understand these uh, vivid pictures. We need an interpreter, Lord. We need a guide. We need your Holy Spirit to show us with clarity what you are saying to the churches today. Lord, we come before you as people with confidence that you do help, that you do give us uh, the, the truth that we long to have. And that, Lord, as we commit ourselves to responding to that truth, so you open our eyes and warm our hearts and strengthen our wills. So, Lord, we pray, whatever we learn this morning, help us to put it into practice. For your glory's sake. Amen. I don't know whether you ever thought about it, but um, one of the most fundamental things which drives human beings is the feeling that things are not as they should be. For all the pleasures and uh, satisfactions of this world, uh, people still feel almost universally that, that things could, actually probably that things should be better. In fact, it's, a, it's remarkable how much human endeavor is, is fueled by that single thought, things are not as they should be, how can they be better? Trouble is, there is no agreement in the world about uh, what is wrong and therefore about what the solution is. You know, politicians argue interminably, don't they? At the moment it's over uh, European integration, but in a previous generation it was over the uh, relative merits of socialism and capitalism and so on. Psychologists argue, you know, they try to plumb the mysteries of the mind and come up with all sorts of models, but no two models agree with each other. Philosophers love to argue. They spend nothing, their time doing nothing else down the way in the university. 
And sadly, yeah, religions argue about absolutely everything. We know something is wrong in the world, but we cannot agree what it is or how to fix it. Now, that observation actually fits very well with what we've learned in the book of Revelation so far. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you will know that from chapter 6 onwards, we've been looking at what, what, is, what is going on in the world since the time of Christ and what will continue to go on in the world until Jesus comes again at the end of uh, history. And we saw very clearly that uh, uh, the world is far from hunky-dory. There are lots of things going wrong. John, John saw uh, just last week these, these terrible locusts from hell, didn't he? That tormented people so that they longed for death. He saw a terrifying horses ruled by the devil himself that killed people. You know, at a time when the suicide rate amongst young men is causing major concern, and uh, with the recent memory of several major episodes of genocide in the world, it's difficult to say that John is being a scaremonger, isn't it? The world is profoundly wrong. The remarkable thing, though, from the Bible's perspective, is that despite what Revelation has said about uh, God sh trying to show people the malevolent forces that are at work in this world, they still do not believe God. They still do not repent. They still do not find themselves persuaded that they should renounce evil and follow God. We find, paradoxically, the end of chapter 9, after all these terrible uh, warnings, that the rest of mankind actually worship the very demons that have been tormenting and killing them. People know that something is wrong, but they just cannot see what is wrong. And therefore they are uh, uh, in deep, deep trouble. So the question must be in our mind, must God speak again? Must God do something uh, even more dramatic to reveal the devil's malevolence and to turn people away from him? Well, chapter 10 shows us that it seems as if he is about to do that. See, there's a mighty angel that comes down to earth. And you see in verses 3 and 4, um, John hears the voice of seven thunders following on from these seven seals that have been uh, uh, broken open, from, especially from these seven trumpets that are, that are being sounded of warning. But John is quite specifically told that he is not to say what is in these seven thunders. Verse 4, when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to, to write... But I heard a voice from, seven, from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. If people will not repent after these seven trumpet warnings, they are not going to repent after hearing more and more warnings of the same general sort. So then is it impossible that people will change their minds? Is the verdict at the end of chapter 9 the definitive verdict for Revelation? People will not repent. 
Is the, is the, the message of Revelation actually that the, the faithful people should just batten down the hatches and wait for God's judgment to fall upon all those others who still worship the forces of evil? Well, actually, no, it's not. Actually, Revelation, is very, as well as being extremely, brutally realistic about uh, the power of evil in this world, is incredibly optimistic about the possibility of people repenting, the possibility of people coming to worship God. And it's uh, that that is explored in this interlude amongst these trumpet warnings in chapters uh, 10 and 11. Before the seventh and last trumpet is sounded, God is going to speak to the world in a different way. And it's that way that is uh, uh, found in this little scroll that we saw. I saw another mighty angel, verse 1, coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. And he was holding a little scroll. Now, if you are alert, you will know that a scroll has already appeared in uh, Revelation so far. It was a scroll that we saw in chapter 5, which was absolutely sealed with seven seals. And in fact, throughout chapter 6, we saw those seals slowly being opened. And we said that that represented the fulfillment of God's purposes for his people and for his world. That was represented God bringing about the salvation that he intended to bring about and the judgment that he intended to bring about. So what's this little scroll? Is it related to that? I think the best uh, answer to that is that it is, uh, but it is not quite the same. It is a little scroll. It is a message about that great story. It is a message as well that can be taken by John and consumed by him. It's like a bite-sized version, quite literally. Now, this, is, this is what John has to speak about that great unfolding story. That's why it's a little scroll. And in support of that, in fact, it uh, resembles very uh, much... A, uh, an incident in, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 3, where Ezekiel himself was called to eat a scroll which tasted uh, uh, sweet. And that scroll qualified Ezekiel to speak to his world. So this is the message about God's purposes for salvation and for judgment. The message about God bringing all of history to fulfillment. Not the process itself, but the message about it. And chapter 10, verse 5, to chapter 11, verse 2, focuses then on this message which is given to John to speak. After that, we will look at the messengers who are appointed after John to speak the same message. But first of all, we need to look for a while at the message itself. It's very significant, I think, that John actually has to, to uh, uh, approach the angel and ask 
for this scroll. He has to take it himself. It has to be something that, that he does. It's actually the first time in the book that John is asked to do anything active. Up to now, God has been the great agent. It has been God who was achieving everything. But now John has a responsibility to take that scroll. And John also has a responsibility to, to eat that scroll, to assimilate it into itself, for it for himself, for its message to come from his heart. But the most important thing that I want us to think about, uh, about this message is, is what it is like when he does assimilate it, when he does eat it. Verses 9 and 10. I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it, it will turn your stomach, stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my, my stomach turned sour. This gives us our biggest clue, actually, as to the nature of the message that John had to speak. It is at the same time sweet and sour, or perhaps more accurately, bitter. Those are the two sides, you see, of the Christian gospel that uh, anyone who wants to speak the truth about God must hold together a sweetness and a bitterness there is about that, that message. There is, a, there is a, a real bitterness about God's message to this world because he says to proud, independent people who give no thought, about, uh, thought to him, he says to them, I am utterly opposed to you from the very depths of my being. He says to self-righteous people who think that they live a good life and do not really need God, your sins are far more serious than you think. In fact, they put you in danger of the fires of hell. He says to religious people who go to church regularly and yet who are not really in their heart of hearts disciples, he says to them, you are in the greatest danger of all because you are in the deep danger of hypocrisy. Just look at, the, look at Jesus' ministry amongst uh, people in his day and you will see that. Bold, cutting. You know, it evoked uh, responses in people uh, such that at an early stage they were plotting to kill him. Such truths are very bitter pills to swallow. And yet they uh, are absolutely vital to us. Not surprising then that when John swallowed this message about God's intentions for this world, his stomach was turned sour. It's not surprising either that the church has so often shied away from that side of the message. And yet it has always been catastrophic for God's church when it has. The beginning of this century, liberal Christianity was the dominant form of Christianity in this country. But liberalism has never, ever dared really to speak this, this bitter side of God's message. It was a message that was famously summarized by a theologian called Richard Niebuhr, who said that it was they, they spoke of a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
And it is no surprise to anyone who has read the Bible that at the end of this century, liberalism has more or less collapsed. It just has no backbone. Even today, it's remaining advocates who claim to be prophetic, when you listen to them carefully, are actually only prophets of a certain politically correct agenda. You know, they will speak very powerfully on subjects that they know a significant proportion of the population wants to hear, but on matters that they know nobody outside of the true Christians want to hear, they are absolutely silent. I was talking to a, a fellow minister uh, just this week who, who was um, taught and educated in a, in a liberal college, and uh, he's married to a Jewish Christian. And he said that uh, uh, while he was studying at his college, he, he read uh, Eberhard Bethke's famous biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a leading Christian who opposed the Nazis in the 1930s. And uh, this biography of Bonhoeffer records how many of the, the other leading Christians in Germany at that time actually became Nazi brown shirts in the 30s. And my friend said he sat there reading the names of these theologians who were turning up to uh, church councils in their uh, uh, Nazi uniforms. And he realized that these were theologians that his college was expecting him to respect. And he said he sat there and thought that if he had been living 50 years earlier in Germany these very theologians would have been party to the arrest, internment, and brutal murder of his wife and children. The liberal agenda has always reshaped itself to fit the mood of society that it is in. It has never had a backbone. It has never actually dared to stand up and speak against anything. But I have to say, before we feel too self-righteous as, uh, as evangelicals, we too can be guilty of similar spinelessness. Don't let's deceive ourselves. We perhaps boldly stand against the world, but we can be very guilty of self-flattery within our own little sphere, can't we? Once the doors are safely uh, closed, evangelicals spend tend to spend an awful lot of their time just reassuring one another how wonderful we are and how clever we are to escape the big bad world. We are not guiltless. Actually, the great um, uh, reformer, Martin Luther, used to say that the Bible is a word against us as well as for us. The Bible warns and rebukes and humbles Christians Every Christian has enough sin left in them for reading the Bible to be a bitter experience. I never, never trust a preacher who flatters his congregation. That preacher is not speaking God's word to you. Never, ever trust anyone who is never self-critical. They are not hearing God's word to themselves. Only in heaven will all God's words be words of comfort. Till then there is bitterness 
about God's word to us as John himself found. But there is a marvellous sweetness too. You know, once we have accepted the bitter medicine, the cure is wonderful. I woke up with a headache this morning. And the best thing for headache is a couple of paracetamols, but don't leave them in your mouth too long. The cure, though, is such a relief, isn't it? Once we have been warned about God's wrath, we can rejoice in God's love. Once we have taken seriously the awful prospect of eternal separation from God, it actually deepens profoundly the joy that we have of eternal union from God with, with God. Once, once we've looked into the abyss of being judged for our sins and been shown how awful those sins are, the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven becomes even more a sweet truth. Any church which is actually not fundamentally joyful in the end has not tasted the gospel in its fullness, the sweetness of the gospel. And it's this bitter, sweet message then, this message with two aspects to it, that John is called to preach to the whole world. Verse 11 of chapter 10. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Actually, the normal list uh, uh, in Revelation is people, nations, languages, and tribes. But John actually substitutes kings for tribes at the end of that to show, I think, that this message has, has authority even over the highest authorities of the world. No messenger of the gospel need feel in any way in awe of even the greatest and mightiest person that they ever meet. This is a message to humble kings as well as every other person. Kings do not rule over the church the church, as it speaks the gospel, rules over kings. And this is the message that will make a difference. This is the message that at the end brings people to repentance. This is the message that opens people's eyes in a way that just the simple observation of the troubles of this world that we've been exploring up to now does not and it is a message that is still very relevant today, which brings us on to the next thing that John sees. We've seen the message that he was given, that it was bittersweet. But now he sees uh, uh, two witnesses who are there to carry the message on. Verse uh, 3 of chapter 11. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. They have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. I don't think these two witnesses are particular historical figures. They are two 
because, because uh, according to the Bible, it always requires two witnesses to verify the truth of something. These witnesses are the true church, the faithful church, the church that down through the ages has always given a consistent story. Wherever it was geographically or historically, its witness has been consistent and therefore must be believed. You are a believer here. These two witnesses are you. And these witnesses prophesy, it says, which in Revelation always means apply the truths of the gospel to the world. They prophesy for 1,260 days. That's actually, uh, in round figures, three and a half years. It's a symbolic period, you see. Uh, half of the number seven. Seven was the, uh, has the uh, sense of completeness about it. So for, for, for a, a, an incomplete, limited period, they will have freedom to prophesy. And they will prophesy in sackcloth, John says. In other words, they will be calling people to repentance. Exactly what, what, what uh, we've been looking for people to do all along. John says they are the two olive trees, which recalls a passage in uh, Zechariah chapter uh, four, where two godly leaders of his day, in fact, were described as olive trees. And in that same passage, actually, Zechariah sees a lampstand, an image which has already been used in uh, Revelation quite a lot, and it and comes up again here, because John sees two lampstands. And there we saw that a lampstand indicates the, the church, the healthy church, the church with the God indwelling it, shedding its light abroad. You see, John wants us to see that these witnesses are the faithful people of God giving out light throughout all generations. In fact, Zechariah uh, chapter 4 has a, a very uh, interesting summary to this picture. God says that uh, that vision is so that they will know that not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, these things will happen. That's what's going on. The church does not then derive its power from forceful personalities or brilliant organizations or, or political intrigue. It is empowered by the spirit of God himself. And the faithful witness always has been. It was in Zechariah's day, and it will be throughout all of history. And this uh, a powerful spirit of God makes these witnesses absolutely invincible. They are, he says, like fire-breathing dragons incinerating all in their path. They've got uh, the, the authority of the great prophet Elijah who prophesied a drought which would last for three and a half years. And it happened. They have the power of Moses who, when he went and spoke to Pharaoh of Egypt, could call down plague after plague on the evil Egyptian empire. They are unstoppable. 
And says, uh, and says John, the church is the inheritor of all that power, all the power that we have seen in the Old Testament, whether from prophets or from great uh, um, leaders like Moses, has been invested by God in the church who now bear witness to him. And the church will bear witness for as long as God wants it to do. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, however, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. There will come a day, says John, a day chosen by God when in fact the church will be overpowered. It's not something that happens actually only once. It's something that happens repeatedly throughout history. The beast, which we'll see in more detail next week, uh, wields all the power of hell. When God allows it, he can overcome the church. Sometimes it is literally through martyrdom. Sometimes it is literally through Christians being killed. Still more common then uh, we would like to think that that happens, you know. Sometimes the devil, though, wins his battles in, in more subtle ways. But down through the history, again and again, the people of God have seemed to lay effectively dead in the street of the great civilizations that they have lived in. John says that's been happening all along. He, uh, he, re he refers to the great city, which is uh, almost certainly he's describing Rome of his day. He says Rome will be quite powerful enough to destroy the church. But he says, uh, uh, not just Rome. Oh, no. Sodom, back in the days of Abraham, opposed God with similar power. The great nation of Egypt opposed God with similar overwhelming power. And don't forget, he says, Jerusalem itself crucified Jesus Jesus wasn't joking when he said, uh, all men will hate you because of me. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And when the church is overwhelmed, when somehow the church seems to be dead, he says, the world will rejoice, let's be honest about it. Churches and Christians who are, that are really speaking God's word to the world are always a pain in the proverbial, aren't they? So when they fall, the world will celebrate. In this country, the church uh, has been uh, apparently slain many, many times. Most recently, I think it's been overwhelmed. It was overwhelmed at the end of the last century, in the beginning of this, by... Uh, uh, the forces of the Enlightenment, 
which more or less uh, uh, destroyed its witness for a while. And everyone congratulated themselves. Everyone's congratulated themselves that that nasty, schismatic, popular, uneducated, old-fashioned form of Christianity that they used to label with the word enthusiasm has gone for this superior form of Christianity, which is a little bit more intellectually credible. Actually, even many of the churches celebrated with the world not realizing that they were at their own funeral. Jesus died. The world always opposes the faithful witness of God and sometimes wins the battle. But Jesus rose again. See that? Verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered the witnesses and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from, uh, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. A faithful witness to the gospel cannot be snuffed out in this world any more than Jesus himself could be. Yes, the devil may achieve victories of a sort. He managed to get Jesus onto the cross, but that turned out to be a defeat. In fact, the true church always rises again. In fact, fact, uh, John says its very immortality is one of its most powerful witnesses Two people, they are amazed and terrified that somehow the church rises again. Somehow a church that is recognizably the same as the church in the first century, as the church in the third century, when, uh, when all the, the might of Rome was trying to oppress it, as the church in the 16th century, when uh, in the Ref- days of the Reformation, people were being executed in this very city. It always rises again. It always recrudesces like one of those uh, uh, birthday candles that you try and blow out and then it comes up again. The church will not be put out. And that uh, faithful witness, that witness, combined then with the trials and traumas that we've seen in chapters 8 and chapter 9, brings people to repentance. Verse 13. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. So another reminder, you see, that there is real trouble in this world. But now that they have heard the message of the witnesses, now that they have got this message that John received, this bittersweet message, and it has been proclaimed, the survivors are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. There are signs of repentance now. See, most of us here, not all, but most of us, have been brought to the point of repentance. Most of us have heard and responded to that bittersweet message. Most of us, in fact, are called to be like those two witnesses. Are you ready for that? It's the real question. Are you ready for it? 
It is the only way that this this world will be brought to, to, to know God, to love God, to eternal life. The message of the gospel is absolutely essential to this world. Nothing else will save people from the horrors of their sin, no matter how clearly they start to see. Nothing else will save them. Are we ready for that? Are we going to be faithful to that message? Are we going to uh, rather cut our uh, coat to fit our tastes? Only faithful witnesses receive that power. What power they receive? Only faithful witnesses bear fruit. See, if we, if we do not bear witness in the way that is called here, is described here, there is no expectation of fruit. There is no expectation of, uh, of uh, the power on authority that God says will be invested in his people. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He did not say that we were allowed to say, I will follow you, Jesus, but only so far. That's like, a, that's like entering a marathon race and thinking that you can win it after 100 yards. Just does not happen. Disciples that give up when the going gets tough are not in the company of John, they are in the company of Judas. And there is no guarantee of immunity in this world from battering and even premature death in Christian discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me, said Jesus. The great uh, theologian, Tertullian, said, said that uh, the uh, seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. And he was right. It has been so throughout the centuries. Even this century, you know, the uh, witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was educa- uh, executed by the Nazis, has been far, far more nourishing to the church and the witness of liberal theologians who survived by compromise in those dark days. The Church of England as well has been profoundly nourished down through the centuries by the prayer book, which was substantially authored by Cranmer, who himself was burnt at the stake in this very city. Not to mention the thousands and tens of thousands of people who have lived their lives prepared to face any cost, but in fact were mercifully spared. Will you give your life in that way then? That's the question that uh, chapters 10 and 11 are asking us. We modern Christians spend so much of our time seeking wholeness, don't we? Now Jesus says, I want people who are prepared to be broken. Then I'll make them whole. I'll make them whole then through resurrection life. 
Will you say yes to that? I'm, I am realistic enough to know, you know, that not everybody says yes. Not everyone, even those who sit uh, and nod and listen carefully to what's being said, say yes in the end. Sometimes it's the most surprising people who say no. I will not follow Jesus in that way. Church leaders say no. Respectable people say no. Bible scholars say no. People who who look like they've got their act together and got all the answers say no. People who seem to have been Christians for decades say no when the cost is shown to them. Sometimes the most surprising people say yes. Ordinary people, broken people, people people who no one respects, people who no one thinks much of, people who doubt themselves, people who struggle. They say, yes, I will give my life for Christ. I will follow him whatever it costs. So is that you? I cannot guarantee even your life if you follow Christ. Uh, just uh, this last day, I've been uh, asked to pray for a missionary from a wealthy church in America who's a missionary in uh, Guinea-Bissau who is on trial for murder and uh, could quite possibly be executed as a result of uh, hostility that uh, has come upon him. Now, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer languished in prison, waiting for his execution, he wrote this. He said, who stands fast? Only the person who is ready to sacrifice all when they are called to obedient and responsible action in faith and exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible person who tries to make their whole life an answer to the question and call of God. And he says this. Where are these responsible people? Are they here? 